Welcome everybody to the Life, Death and Happiness Podcast. This podcast is all about real talks with real people. Why? Because some stories just need to be told. In each episode, I will sit down and talk with my guest about how it is to live with an incurable disease or terminal illness. But let me get this straight before we start. This is all about celebrating life. I'm your host, Daniel Cole. Welcome. In this episode, I have the honor of uh, talking to Carl from Michigan. And Carl, can you say hi and uh, tell us a little about yourself? Oh, hi, Daniel. I've hi. been. I'm really excited to be on this podcast. I've I've been following your podcast since you came out with it, and I've found it really inspirational and really interesting to learn more about uh, uh, the the lives, the people that you have on here. But yeah, my name is Kyle Tanner. I'm 24 years old. Uh, I was diagnosed with Fanconi anemia uh, mm-hmm. when I was 16 years old. Uh, I just graduated college with a bachelor's degree in broadcasting. And I nice. had a bone marrow transplant, yeah, actually two years ago. So not very long ago where uh, I was coming out of, you know, being in a very medically savvy, I guess, environment. And that's really what all was going on in my life for a period of time not too long ago. But now, yeah, I got through college and uh, now I'm here. <laughs> yeah. So you have actually managed to go through college afterwards. It's kind of impressive, actually. Yeah, that was... a. Uh, I learned I needed my bone marrow transplant during my senior year of college, first semester senior year of college. Hmm. So I had a good part of it already done. And uh, when I learned that I would have to be taking, you know, at least a year off before I could come back and uh, complete my degree. But yeah, there was times when I didn't really know if that was going to be possible. But I kind of in the back of my head, I knew that if I were alive, that I was going to achieve like that. I was going to do that. I was going to finish what I started because I was too close to the end. To not finish it. Oh, I, f- I fully yeah. get that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, when when were you diagnosed, and what was the was, diagnosis you had you had at that time? Uh, I was first diagnosed when I when I was 16 years old. Uh, mm-hmm. They came about the diagnosis from a kidney stone. So I had a kidney stone. It put me in the hospital. Uh, you know, they did the blood test and stuff like that, and they're able to uh, tell you know something was off in my blood counts. You know, something just wasn't right. And from there, I got forwarded to a hematologist at the University of Michigan, uh, where I'm from, and they did more testing. And that, you know, inevitably led to FA, but it wasn't, you know, like most people's story, it wasn't like an immediate, oh, we figured out what it was. Because a lot of physicians and doctors, that's not the first thing they're looking for when they see off blood counts. uh, Yeah, it's uh, suddenly that that they start looking for rare disease. They usually go for the normal stuff that they know about. And yeah. Yep, yep, and that's that's you know at first they thought I had leukemia, and then they thought you know maybe it's like aplastic anemia. That's the things they were really looking at, and they mm. really kind of told us what they thought it was probably going to end up. But Fanconi anemia was on the board at one point of what they were thinking, you know, that they were going to test for, but it wasn't something that was at the forefront of what they thought it would be. Okay, so so you uh, was diagnosed with Fanconi anemia, and what what was the immediate reaction from both you and your family? Uh, I think it's even hard because, I mean, it really wasn't like, you know, that long ago where I was diagnosed, Mm. but, uh, I knew something, I was going to be diagnosed with something and that something was going to be off. 
And mm-hmm. I knew nothing about Fanconi anemia, not even when I was told the diagnosis, even beforehand that, you know, it could be a possibility it was on the board, but I didn't research that uh, disease or didn't look into that. So it still came as a surprise to me. And, uh, but my parents, I think they may have known more about it uh, because their reaction, I mean, I think with any parent was a lot more like uh, they were encapsulated in the emotion. I could see it, you know, on their face that this was a very, this was a very grim diagnosis. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think my reaction was more geared at looking at the other people around me and seeing what their reaction to reaction to it was. And that's what I was reacting to. And I knew it was bad, but, uh, I've heard you say it before too. Uh, it was kind of like an out of body experience. I really didn't feel like I was really present in there to feel all of it. Like I almost as a defense mechanism, my body may have, uh, somehow like disassociated my mind from it and the implications of it, which I didn't know the implications at the time anyway, Hmm. But it felt very surreal. You know, it kind of felt like everything slowed down during that time frame when I was told. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that people who haven't tried to get uh, diagnosed that is uh, on this level, that is so difficult when you get when you sit there and you and somebody's telling you that you have this and this disease, even if it's cancer or it's a anemia or some of the other stuff that can happen to you. I mean. It's just surreal in so many ways because it's, I think for a lot of us, this is something, it's very classic, it's very cliche. It's something that would happen to someone else. I mean, you never expect (laughs) it to happen to you. That's just... Yeah, yep, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of people carry that that with them, that, you know, bad things aren't, those type of bad things aren't going to happen to me. The type of bad things that completely you know, shift your, your world or way of thinking. Mm. Uh, we don't really expect to have those things happen to us that, you know, that's what we see in movies or we see in articles written about other people or, mm. you know, just just stories that, yeah, we don't really, we don't really think that we're going to experience that or have any idea how to feel when we do experience it. We're not, you know, we're not equipped to, to deal with that type of diagnosis. Mm. I don't think really anybody, anybody is, Agree, agree. <laughs> and let, let me ask you a question because I met you like I think it was three years ago at uh, something called Camp Sunshine in Maine, and uh, back then I w- immediately I was like, oh, "Okay, you're a pretty first guy." You were like, you were very different. You seem to me, you seem very different from a lot of the people and the kids who grew up with Fanconi anemia and all these mm-hmm. things. So it was also, it was not totally new for you back then, but it was still newish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, that was. So I wonder, how was your life life up until you got this diagnosis? Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty normal. Like that's how that's how I would explain it. Maybe I didn't think it was normal at the time that I was in it. Mm. But uh, yeah, I grew up, you know, with with my with my two parents. I had a I had two sisters that I grew up with, mm-hmm. uh, and I also have a half brother, but I didn't grow up with him. But, you know, I played out. I played outside a lot. I played lots of sports. I loved sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very active. Uh, you know, I had I had really good friends that I was able to, you know, spend time and hang out with. And my house was like the was like the get together house. Like whenever I had friends and I, that I'd hang out with, they would always come to my house. My house was like the the place to be. And I, I came <laughs> I came out like I figured out later in life that. The reason it was like that is because my parents, they thought, you know, 
well, if he's going to get into trouble, at least we know uh, he's here. <laughs> and at least we can, like, have a little bit of control and say in what he's doing. So they always let my friends come over and let my friends hang out at our house because uh, they liked that. Or my mom at least liked that control that she had to be able to kind of monitor me. But That's that was actually I, pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, that was before I was even diagnosed, though, uh, hmm. that she was like that. And uh, she was always very, yeah, very protective. And I grew up... Uh, even though I think it was somewhat normal, I, I did have my health problems. I did have, I seemed to get sick more often than most kids. Uh, I think I had pneumonia once. Uh, and I was kind of a hypochondriac. I was, I always thought medically that there was something going on with me. And sometimes that would lead to like anxiety or, or panic attacks when I was younger. Cause I thought, you know, mm. something was wrong with me. And, and you were uh, probably right looking back. Yeah. And, and you know, it kind I kind of, I kind of was, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you can, yeah. And, uh, you know, getting the diagnosis of FA, I felt like kind of in a way, uh, validated, <laughs> validated <laughs> my concerns, but I don't think that it's necessarily a good thing to, to live like that. And, uh, how I was living and the, okay. just the fear that I lived with a lot of times that there was something wrong with me. Uh, but, but if I might be wrong here, but I talked to some of the other people in the podcast about it. You get to know your own body in a yes. different way when you are having some kind of uh, life-challenging disease. And my thought when you tell me this is that maybe on a subconscious level, you maybe still have this, um, what do you call this feeling of being in yeah, control of your body. I mean... It's it's like a defense mechanism we do have in our bodies. I mean, yeah, so, to I, protect ourselves. So maybe you still had that even though you wasn't aware of having this disease. Yeah, it was almost sort of like a uh, of of an intuition, hmm. thinking that. But you know, everybody around you doesn't believe it. Doesn't believe what's going on with you because they have the same thing happen to them sometimes, where they think you know something's wrong with them. They look it up, and you know, it turns out to be to be nothing. Hmm. But uh, yeah, with the FA diagnosis, it kind of validated that. But over time, I've learned uh, I've learned a lot more, you know, just about how to be in tune with my body and discerning the mental exaggerations of a symptom mm -hmm. uh, and deciding if it's really uh, right to devote my mental energy mental energy to it. So uh, that's that's what I've been, you know, learning after all these years since I've been diagnosed, trying to become more in tune with my body and know when something, okay, this is actually a problem that I need to address. And then one of it where it's just like, uh, you know, I'm just worrying because that's 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 natural for me to do. <laughs> But uh, that's it's been a learning process in that way. Oh, believe so, believe so. Mm -hmm. um, well, I have to ask you about your bone marrow transplantation that you went through mm -hmm. because when I met you, you uh, you haven't had it yet yep. the first time around. And I met you, and uh, we talked and uh, had a lot of fun. I thought you were a great guy. And mm -hmm. then we met like a year and a half later mm -hmm. at uh, in Atlanta, I think it was. Was yep, it Atlanta? Think, yeah, it was in Atlanta. Yep. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like it was longer than a year and a half, but like maybe it wasn't because <laughs> time for me, yeah, didn't wasn't the same anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was really thinking when we when I said it was it only one and a half year after. I think it was, mm -hmm. but. Uh, And I kind of, uh, when I walked down uh, at the hotel and you were suddenly there, mm -hmm. I didn't actually recognize you to begin with. And oh, I yeah, felt that's... so bad about it afterwards because 
but because so much much have happened to you, you've been through mm-hmm. so much. So it wasn't mm-hmm. actually it was my wife was like was like, why didn't you say hi? I was like, hi, it's Kyle, and I had to turn around. I was like, <laughs> oh, I felt so bad. I don't even think I mentioned it to you that day, but oh, I just in my stomach. I was like, Yuck. oh man, how are you doing? <laughs> but but yeah. It kind of tells the story of you've been through so much. Mm-hmm. Can can you get yep. into a little about? Yeah, abs- about this absolutely. whole process of going going into a a bone marrow transplantation, and maybe explain people a little about what it is and what it does. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I don't I don't blame you for not not recognizing me. I mean, even I would have, you know, with uh, people in the the uh, sensation not sensation, but like thought of uh, body dysmorphia. Hmm. where I would look at myself in the mirror sometimes and not like, I knew it was me there, but yeah. because of all the drugs that I had been on, you know, all the, what mostly caused me to look different was a drug called prednisone, hmm. which causes you to uh, retain fluid like crazy. Like oh yeah, I would gain when, you know, during my transplant process and when I went on prednisone, I would gain 10 pounds in a week. Sometimes hmm. that's how much my weight would fluctuate because of this drug and because of the large doses I was on. But yeah, uh, before, you know, before I had my bone marrow transplant, it, I didn't understand the, the physical, uh, the major physical implications of what having F8 can actually, what it can do. Mm. What does it actually mean in some cases? And, uh, yeah, the major physical challenges that I had, they didn't present themselves until I had my bone marrow transplant. Mm. And, uh, the B, the, having the BMT taught me how bad things can really get physically. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the feeling of not having any platelets, the feeling of like having, you know, I had meningitis at one point, uh, you know, lost all my hair, which, you know, is going to happen when you get chemo and radiation. Yeah. Uh, just all these different things that happen to you when you go through a bone marrow transplant that really make you feel the, the implications of, Mm. of, of the, of the disease. Like before it was all, you know, just a more of, so a mental, a mental, uh, experience hmm. and then now with the bone marrow transplant that i had it became more than just a mental experience but things were manifesting themselves uh physically and it just made it feel a lot more real like at that point i kind of knew how serious fa was and how serious it could be when uh when i had my transplant because my transplant well first of all it didn't if you want me, I can I can get into kind of like the story of how my transplant went. Yeah, please do uh, so. Yeah, but but yeah, just go with what you were saying. But yeah, uh, so the first, I mean, you, do you do the chemo, you, chemo and radiation workup? Uh, I had my transplant at University of Minnesota under uh, Dr. John Wagner, mm-hmm. great doctor. But uh, we don't have to talk too much about that. But uh, <laughs> but um, right when I had the day that I had my transplant, received my transplant, I had it done, and they told me it was going to last. You know, it probably last a few minutes to maybe up to maybe 20 or 30 minutes, the max. Hmm. And I had my transplant and it lasted, which I've, some people listening might already know this from other people, but it's pretty much a glorified blood transfusion. Hmm. The the transplant literally is very uneventful. It's not like, it's not, it's, it's not like a big crazy thing. It's like, it's like you're getting a blood transfusion. If anybody's ever had one of those, it's very simple. It's very, maybe not simple, but it feels, you know, just very easy. And it went in over the period of about 45 seconds to a minute. It lasted. And I'm like, that's it. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's it. But like, to me, like something just wasn't, wasn't right there. And, uh, <laughs> the next morning, uh, the doctor that was on, 
the doctor was there, that was there for rounds that week came into my room and explained to me that I didn't get enough cells that maybe I had gotten like one-tenth of what they really wanted me to get. Ah, and that, okay. So, okay, I thought you were mm-hmm. like more like surprised that the window was a quickly when getting the, but it was actually because you felt it in your body immediately. Well, it's because it, la- it didn't last long. It, like it lasted, you know, 30 or 45 seconds. And I felt from what they told me that it was going to last a little bit longer than that. Yeah. But, you know, right after that, they try to reassure me that, oh, you know, everything, you know, that's that's fine. Sometimes they are that fast. Mm. But the next morning, the doctor came in and told me that I didn't receive enough cells. And I did. I think they knew that then when they were giving it to me. Mm-hmm. Because I because I mean, how could you not know that I wasn't getting enough cells? But they figured out that I didn't get enough. And they told me that, you know, they weren't they didn't think that I could really have a successful transplant unless I was able to get more cells. Okay. And at this point, I had already went through chemo and radiation. And, uh, yeah, so if the, the, they, they gave me, they gave pretty much said two options. They said, A, we can contact the donor again and see if they'll be willing to donate again, but this time peripheral blood stem cells, which is different from uh, bone marrow from them and like getting it out of your back and sedating you. Okay. Uh, peripheral blood stem cells, you know, they get it through your blood and they filter the, the stem cells out. But they said they can re- recontact the donor and see if he'll donate again. Or two, they can try to find cord blood matches for me mm. to add onto my transplant. And at this point, you know, time time is kind of ticking. I mean, my body is is not producing any of the blood time, cells. Time is like crucial, that. yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah, because I already had the chemo and radiation, and my body needed to start producing, you know, white blood cells and these things to start oh, yeah. repairing itself. And uh, they weren't confident that this would happen unless I got these extra cells. Mm. So at that point, it was a waiting game to see if the donor would be willing to donate again or if that they would have to search for those uh, core blood uh, cells, which they I knew at that point they were already searching for uh, just because just in case the donor wouldn't be able to give again or didn't mm. want to. Uh, thankfully, I think it was 10 days later, I had my second transplant on uh, February 17th, which was 10 days from my first transplant. Mm. And uh, was it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and. Uh- yeah, thankfully he decided it was a it was a guy, a twenty I think believe a twenty one year old male at that time from Germany. Mm-hmm. They contacted him and he decided that he would do it again. And oh. yeah, that's that was such the the ten days up to that waiting period was actually pretty weird. I could tell that it was much harder for my my mom to deal with that mm. waiting period. And I like for when I heard you know those words that I didn't get enough cells and that I had two options, I had pretty much. I relinquished control of the situation. Hmm. I knew that, you know, whatever I was was going to do, like, wouldn't make, like, a lot of what was going to happen to me was out of my control at that point. It was all up to the doctors to do, to be able to get those stem cells or be able to find those core blood uh Yeah, that time, there ain't much you can do about it anyway. I mean, you're yeah. laying there and you just, it's a waiting game for you. And Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it was weirdly, it doesn't sound like this would happen, but I actually had a sense of relief when I relinquished, like pretty much said that it's uncertain what's going to happen. Mm. And I completely gave up the control. And at that point, it was almost kind of like I relaxed because I stopped trying to control everything. Mm. Uh, and yeah, that was a very, a very uh, different experience from what you know one would expect to happen. But yeah, uh, and thankfully I was able to get those cells 
and continue going on with the journey to the transplant. And uh, I was able to get out at day plus 26, which is relatively, it's not, that's not bad. I mean, that's a pretty, that's actually pretty early where my, I got the new cells and then they started to come in and they were able to see my ANC was good enough mm-hmm. to go, you know, to go out, maybe not out in public, but go back to, I went to the Ronald McDonald house there in Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was able to go there and everything was going along pretty well. I was actually, I actually felt pretty good. Mm-hmm. I was even exercising at that point. I was doing my own exercises already? that, yeah, I was already wow. ready to, you know, <laughs> ready to start getting my body back to what I thought that, uh, you know, it was at previously. And, you know, I think I started doing that a little too soon. It's not like I went. And you think I went so out after twenty six days? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't go out in like public and you know parade around or anything. I always wore my mask and things like that. Mm. But at about day plus forty, I started getting really severe headaches, okay. uh, like really debilitating headaches that would make it so I really wouldn't be able to do anything. And uh, I was also losing weight really fast because I. I mean, when you have a headache, you're not very. You're not very hungry. <laughs> oh, definitely. But. Not. Uh, you know, they sent me back into the hospital to try to figure this out. And they're like, you know, we're going to do a spinal tap to try to, because we think this is what it might be associated with. Maybe we can figure out something from your spinal fluid. Hmm. Uh, and at that point they were able to find out I was, I had viral meningitis, which is a very dangerous for a person with them, with an immune system to have. Oh and, yeah. Uh, but at my mindset at that time, I still was in like this, uh, mind state of kind of things that, you know, they weren't in my control. And I'm just like, oh, well, that's unlucky, but I'm not really surprised that it happened. And, you know, we treated the viral meningitis. Mm-hmm. I was able to get over the meningitis. I got out of the hospital again after they put me back inpatient for 10 days. But even but that about, part alone is it's a very tough fight for most people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's what people have, you know, have told me. It's not like it wasn't tough for me, but my mind state was just in a place like that whatever was coming at me, I was going to, I was going to face it and I wasn't mm. going to face it like a fight, but I was going to face it like this is here and I'm going to make the best out of my situation, uh, mindfully of what I'm thinking, because that's the only thing I had control over. The only thing I had control over was how I looked at a situation. Mm. And that's kind of, I guess, where I put my control at as I didn't put a bunch of time in worrying or, you know, ruminating over things. I had kind of just, I guess people say like live in the now or be present. I was doing that, but I wasn't consciously thinking, oh, I should be thinking this. And that's just what my body did. That's what my mind did. It went to that place of uh, of just trying to be present every moment. And that's how I, I was living during my transplant. But to get back to what happened after my viral meningitis, mm-hmm. uh, I'd gotten over my viral meningitis, but from from what I think and what my theory is that in order to treat the viral meningitis, they had to kind of wean back my immunosuppressants and maybe like bump up, uh, you know, different things to help fight the meningitis, the viral meningitis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in doing so, they had left me open to a, something called graft-versus-host disease oh, or where yeah. your immune system starts, you know, attacking itself. And uh, just, so just for five, the listener, GBH, crest uh, versus host, uh, that is something that a lot of people who have uh, a transfusion like this, uh, it, ha- it happens to most people. And it's like the the nightmare <laughs> of yeah. for all of us. I mean, you're getting a, a transfusion, a bone marrow transfusion, and you're transplantation, and 
you're really hoping that that's it. After this, I will get better. And then GVHD can come in, and uh, usually with a right hook <laughs> to mm. the chin. And uh, but but you can explain that better, just to give people yeah. understanding that this happens to a lot of people when you go through a transplantation afterwards. Yeah, and they tell you a little bit of graft versus host disease is a good thing. A little bit is because I actually did have a little bit of it on my skin hmm. during my transplant, but it wasn't worrisome. It was like, oh, this is good. This means your body is reacting how we expect it to react, and that means hmm. the process that's going on is actually working. And they're like, okay, so this, you know, a little bit of GVHD is good, but this GVHD that happened at around day plus sixty, I think, yeah, sixty something, uh, it was not a good kind of graft versus host disease. Uh, the symptoms that led up to it is where I was going to the bathroom probably, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 times a day. Mm. Like I, I'm not talking, I'm not talking number one either. I'm talking number two. Like it was just coming, you know, like 20, about 20 times a day. Oh. I was losing weight rapidly and it was like maybe four or five days, maybe more than that before the doctors were really like, yeah, we should bring you inpatient. And now looking back at it, you know, mm. it was pretty obvious. I should have been inpatient pretty fast, but they they weren't able to tell how severe it was until they were able to really like look at me when I came in and mm. then also see my weight numbers. They see, they seen that I was dropping weight like rapidly. I think I, the lightest I got was like 90, you know, 91, 92 pounds. Uh, wow. and I lost it. I'd lost it very fast. And at that point, you know, they put me back inpatient again and they're like, okay, we think it's probably like C diff or something which is kind of common after transplant. Uh, I don't know okay. what the real name for it is, but yeah, it's C. diff. It's pretty much like a, a, a bacterial like imbalance in your stomach or something like that. Okay. But they were able to push that off and figure out it wasn't that. And I think that's when they started to think about, okay, let's, let's check to see if this is graft versus host disease because it targets different areas in your body. Hmm. And, you know, the skin, it can target organs. Uh, in my case, it was targeting my lower bowels. So it was targeting my, like my, my lower intestines. And they were able to do a colonoscopy to uh, to confirm that it was graft versus host disease. And what I didn't know about graft versus host disease previous to this is that there's actually stages. There's they uh, grade or grades. So they grade GVHD on a scale of one to four, four being the most severe. Okay. Yeah. And they didn't tell me what my my grade was, but I was able to tell through because I was able to look at the results from the colonoscopy and then also read the doctor's notes mm. and the, you know, what they were writing about it and what they seen. And that I was graded with a grade three out of four, uh, graft versus host disease of the lower intestine. And, uh, that I think just knowing that I remember when I read that, uh, cause they, they were able, they put me on really high dose steroids, prednisone, which mm -hmm. is what caused me, you know, to kind of not look like myself. But in essence, that drug probably saved my life because what it does is, is it's an anti-inflammatory. So it was able to calm down the inflammation and calm down the response of my immune system attacking my lower bowels. So they put me on copious amounts of, of prednisone, really high doses. And, and it was so important I, when they started using that for, for bone marrow transplantation back then. Yeah, it, I, it was I, so vital then that they discovered that how will that work for us? Yeah, and I can I can believe that. And some people, there's a percentage of people that don't respond to it. And then if you don't respond, there's a few other options. But I mean, mm. I didn't know those options at that time. Uh, but I also went on, which I have no idea how how it affected me or if it made me get better faster. But I went on a a drug called Pregnal, which was originally it's originally intended to use for female fertility. Okay. And I was getting these Pregnal injections in the back of my arm because I. 
they pretty much asked me if I wanted to go through with this because they were doing a study. So they put me in a trial uh, and I'm part of a case study for this, for the pregnal to see if it really helps people respond in GVHD cases. And I still, I don't know if that, that article's published or what they were able to hmm. figure out. But at that time, you know, my, my situation was pretty dire in that I had a pretty severe case in that whatever I could possibly use to maybe help me to get over to not maybe get over, but, you know, put me in a better place faster. I was willing to do. So I, I, I you know, I, let, I allowed them to do that. And I got the hmm. pregnant injections for, you know, I don't think it was like a month, a few times a week. And, uh, well, yeah, I don't know how much that helped, but maybe with the, when that study comes out, we'll be able to tell if it actually did, but I was able to, you know, slowly over time and it took a long time, uh, get over the, the, the bowel problems associated hmm. with the GVHD. Uh, not, not without, you know, a plethora of side effects, the weight gain, the muscle deterioration that comes with it, the, the mood swings. I mean, when I was on prednisone at around day 80 through like 130, I was sleeping maybe two to three hours a night max because I was on the high dose and it produces cortisol in your body and that cortisol keeps you up. So I wasn't sleeping. I was just, a lot of times I was researching actually, Mm -hmm. which was, was like a transition from that, uh, state of being accepting uncertainty and, you know, being okay with everything that was going on and relinquishing control. But I almost had like a, a, a switch get flipped in my head. And I think some of it was from the pre- a drug induced state from the mm. prednisone, uh, that kind of made me manic. And I was just researching. I remember I was taking a class at the time to an online class, uh, for my college. At Why that go same through time, all this? Wow. Yes, while 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 that was happening, and I think I signed up when I was actually doing pretty good after my transplant, and we thought, you know, that I would be okay to do this online class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the class was called Death and Dying, and the class was about was about you know learning about how other cultures treat death and mm-hmm. how the you know the outlook of the the uh, I guess the North American you know how we are in the United States, how our our, our outlook on death differs from other cultures. And I actually found that to be, you know, very helpful and very uh, comforting at that time, learning about I could imagine that, yeah. And learning, you know, yeah, learning about something that I felt like I was really close to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember researching and learning about, like, the the statistics of, uh, you know, what's the the chances that I'll live another year? I remember researching that with with grade 3 GVHD Mm. of the lower colon, and I was able to find a study. It was actually from the University of Minnesota that I think it might have been a little dated though, maybe five to 10 years old, maybe a little more, but that showed my, like the statistics showed that you had a 50% chance of survival one year out. And I remember that really, that really affected me just to seeing that number, even though it was just a number, uh, you know, us as humans, we, we tend to really look at statistics and hard facts and oh, science yeah. as being, but my, my I, th- I think it's natural because we have to grab onto something. We have to, uh, mm-hmm feel this control you talked about earlier mm-hmm. and knowledge is it feels like you have some kind of control at least you know what's going on instead of it's just something you know I mean to begin with we know nothing about these kind of things we mm-hmm. learn as we go because we are in the middle of a dire situation and like you mm-hmm. you, you try to study and get mm-hmm. some more information so I think it's I think it's natural actually yeah, and I yeah I think so too, and I think sometimes it sometimes it can be detrimental maybe, but in my case at that time, I felt that w- that it was imperative that I learn, and I, I I don't regret doing what I did, 
Hmm. Uh, I would learn, you know, go and try to learn as much as I could about whatever was going on with me. Because I knew that the doctors, they have many cases to be looking at during the day. Many. Hmm. They can't just focus on one person. And I, since, you know, what was happening was being done to me, I can focus on myself. I can put all the time and energy into researching what's going on with me. And maybe I could help them. Maybe I could give them, you know, even though some doctors don't want to be told what to do hmm. by any means, but it, it felt empowering, like you said, too, to feel in control a little bit. Like I remember looking at my blood counts and learning what each thing meant and mm-hmm. being able to look for certain trends and stuff like that because I, I felt that it was imperative that I knew doctors made mistakes. I had, I had you know, I had seen it <laughs> done, really. Mm-hmm. I had seen doctors make mistakes. And I knew how human they were. So I thought, you know, I maybe would better my chance of survival if I researched all the stuff, if I learned what each blood count meant and things like that. So I could bring it up to them if I seen something and maybe they just brushed over it. Mm. So, yeah, there was a sense of control that I felt when I was in that that mind state and after I had the GVHD. Because before I had the GVHD, I might have been interested in what drug they were giving me at a certain time. Mm -hmm. But I didn't learn about like what it that drug does or what it means or Hmm. what blood counts, what these mean, uh, like physically what they mean. So it wasn't until I had the GVHD and I was really, I felt pressed to, to, to learn these things. And that's, can can I ask you regarding that when you read Mm -hmm. that there's like, we just said 50% chance of surviving this. Mm -hmm. uh, Did you uh, talk to anybody about anybody about it? Or did you, how did you deal with that? Uh, information. I remember telling my mom, <laughs> oh, you which did? is like the last person you'd want to tell. Oh. But I didn't really have any like in person. I didn't have hmm. many people to talk to. But uh, yeah, I just I was kind of angry at that point too. I was kind of angry that they didn't tell me these things. Mm-hmm. That they didn't tell me my grade of GVHD. That I felt like you know they were the doctors. Uh, they were kind of withholding information from me mm-hmm. purposely to maybe protect me. That they thought that they were protecting me, but I'm the type of person that likes to know every little thing that's going on with me, <laughs> good or bad. Uh, so it, it kind of angered me, and I, you know, I was kind of angry that they didn't uh, tell me my grade of GVHD and kind of told me the outlook. But I mean, really, I think if I was a doctor, maybe I wouldn't tell the person either. But uh, it's always a tough choice because, I mean, the I I I would like for the doctors to always tell me exactly what I'm facing mm-hmm. because then I can handle it. And, yeah. I, and I've talked to a lot of other people with Fanconian anemia and cancer and in different stages, and a lot of us feel that way. But in reality, mm-hmm. we also know, as you mentioned here, that the doctors see a lot of patients. And they mm-hmm. also have the experience that many people can't take these kind of informations. So they try to sugarcoat it a bit, or at least not tell everything. Yeah. Yeah, and I can see like how if someone's never been diagnosed with a major medical thing, mm. how imaginatively they would think if I was diagnosed with that, what would I do? They would probably, you know, they'd come up with this elaborate thing in their head that, you know, they would probably freak out and probably, you know, it'd be the end of their their life. Mm. But, you know, since we have actually had that said to us, uh, the diagnosis, we've, you know, we've learned that you can live with this. Like you can, exactly. you can live with it because what else do you do? That's that's the, your your option is that you you live with it and uh, yeah it's not much of a choice either you learn to live with it or you give up yeah and that's what what does give up looking like look like that's that's <laughs> hard for me to imagine I know some people mm-hmm. might be able to imagine it but like yeah 
for me, there was only one thing, and that was just to keep on moving of course. forward. Yeah. But yeah, I think I would. I, I mean, I did. I after the after the GVHD, I did have a plethora of other diagnoses that came about that were usually stemmed from the treatment they used to treat me. So you know, so hard because they had to treat me right then, and they had to give me high doses of different drugs. So I felt a lot of the physical manifestations of that, like I had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I remember being diagnosed with that from the prednisone. Oh, I was also eating like crazy after. After I had, uh, well, after I'd been diagnosed with GVHD, I was NPO, like no food by mouth for a couple weeks, I think. Mm. And that, that drove me, you know, that pretty much drove me crazy. Like being really hungry and not being able to eat, but maybe only eat. Sometimes I was able to eat like rice or like bread, things that they seen as really plain. Mm. Uh, they called it like the neutropenic diet. And some people do go through that with transplant. Something I don't agree with now that I've had my transplant, and I hope mm. that uh, they change that protocol because it's real. Hopefully. I felt like it was really de- detrimental. <laughs> but I mean, at the time when my stomach was really messed up and like tore to pieces, pretty much that's what it felt like. Uh, I was on like a no food bu- or a no food by mouth or bread or maybe just rice or applesauce, and that that drove me crazy because I was also on high doses of prednisone, and prednisone makes you hungry. Oh, that's so just I, the worst combination. I remember just watching, like, the Food Network or Food Channels. Oh, man. Which people are like, why would you watch Food Channels? But that was the way, that was almost, like, cathartic. That was my way to almost Holy eat. shit, it's but, funny. But, I know it's not funny, but it's still very funny. I mean, yeah, you, you're sitting there, and you, you're hungry, and you can't eat. And then you're watching yeah. the Food Channel, just, oh. Yeah, because to me, like, eating, is you know, it's an innate part of human <laughs> nature is that we eat. And I, I couldn't just not think about eating. I was so hungry that I could not stop thinking about eating because my stomach was like, we want food. Like, that's what it was telling me. So I was getting this release by watching, you know, uh, like Man versus Food or Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives and stuff <laughs> like, you know, different food shows. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was getting a release was watching those shows. But that really was torturous, that that part. And oh, I, I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> But I know other people that have went through the same thing, and I know other people that have had it even worse. You know, they've been MPO for two months and couldn't eat anything except through, like, a feeding tube. And, you know, I've heard about, you know, what that has drove them to do. Like, it Hmm. will literally drive people crazy, and I experienced it for a few weeks, and then it was slowly introducing foods back into my system. But, you know, some people, you know, I've went months, and I can't even imagine that. I can't imagine that after going through it for, you know, a few weeks. Yeah, but, I, th- but, I think it was Alison that talked to about it regarding uh, when you uh, had the mouth cancer. And for mm-hmm. the, us who have had that, we only get these protein drinks for a long yep. time because we're not <laughs> able to eat anything else. And it's, it's not the same as not being able to eat at all, but it's still terrible when you love food. Yeah, I in, mean, <laughs> ins- it's like, yeah, insurers and boost. And they've even, like, ah, I, I, I could say a lot of bad stuff about insurance and boost. Like, they hospitals kind of almost you know try to pander them out like oh you should drink this but really you look at the back of the ingredients of those things and they're not good for you they might they might give you sustaining like they might give you those calories so it's Mm -hmm. better to have calories than die of starvation but they they're really they have chemical like a lot of chemicals in them and Mm -hmm. things that our bodies really don't don't want but if that's the only thing that you're taking in 
I mean, yeah, it's good enough to, you know, sustain survival, but it's really not good for you. And, you know, I, I hope that, I hope that hospitals during these transplantation times start looking more into, into diet and how important it is and how we can actually get these nutrients when we can eat properly, safely, but also not making it. So it's like, this is a processed food that doesn't have any bacteria because our gut, our gut does need bacteria. We've, we've learned that, that the Mm. gut microbiome, like that we have bacteria in our stomach that help it move and also, uh, affect mentally how we're thinking and how we feel and getting these chemically, you know, laden foods over and over again are processed foods just because they're safe bacterially. They're affecting us, you know, strongly in, in other areas of our life, mentally and how our body processes food. But isn't this uh, part of the Western problem that (laughs) we don't think about these things in a holistic way? We only think about, I mean, the surgery or whatever it takes, but we don't really consider so much. At least the hospital usually don't consider how much it means. I mean, there's also the mental issues. And and, and as you say here, the things you eat, it's all Mm. part of the big, what do you call it? a bigger thing. I mean, everything has yeah. to work together, mind, body, and soul. But it seems like, I don't know if it's exactly like that in the U.S. I know it's, mm-hmm. it's in this part of Europe that they're mostly thinking about, you know, the clean-cut numbers. You know, it's about doing the surgery. Yeah. And not really caring too much about everything else. I mean, they give you processed, processed food in that situation. How crazy is that when you think about it? Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because... I was lucky enough during my transplant and all the time that I was in Minnesota Mm -hmm. to have integrative therapists. And actually not very many hospitals do it to the extent that the University of Minnesota, the Children's Hospital, does it. But I had had three people usually that I worked with, a music therapist, Mm -hmm. uh, and then two other therapists that did massage therapy. They did Reiki, healing touch. Okay. I had people that would come in and do all these different therapies with me like that we're addressing the mental, uh, social and like spiritual side of things. And that's that actually helped. very cool. I mean, I, I tried right healing, but I never heard about anybody getting that at the hospital. Yeah. I, I, I did have Reiki while I was in the hospital and I, I loved massage therapy. I like, I mean, just think how expensive a massage is, but in the hospital in that setting, I was able to get it free and I was <laughs> able to get it, have it done multiple times a week. So they would be there Monday through Friday. And I, I liked the weekdays more. I didn't like the weekend because they weren't there. But when they were there, I mm-hmm. was able to get massage therapy, music therapy. It, it literally, it made my day. That's what I was looking forward to in the hospital was these integrative therapies. Mm-hmm. And it helped so much. And I hope that, you know, us as a society, especially Western society, starts to see how important that side of things is. The, the tender care of like another person mentally, socially, spiritually, whatever, whatever you call it, like addressing those things in adults Mm -hmm. too, because we're doing a lot better uh, job at, you know, addressing children's concerns uh, mentally, socially, like we know, like they're being highly affected by this traumatic experience of being in the hospital. So we're going to do as much as we can to make it fun or Mm -hmm. more normal to be in the hospital, but they don't do that on the adult side of things. And that's what I was able to see Mm -hmm. by being in a children's hospital because I had my transplant done. Uh, in a children's hospital, in a pediatric hospital. And I knew people that were going through the transplant in the adult hospital. Mm -hmm. And things weren't the same. They don't get treated, adults don't get treated with the same uh, care and compassion that children do. 
That's but I was crazy. lucky enough. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have that care and compassion because I was in a pediatric hospital, and they had the funds and they had the energy uh, devoted to addressing that side of things. But and big credit so to them much. for actually doing that. I mean, I, I'm impressed when you talk about it. I'd be like, yeah, that's the way mm-hmm. to do it. It, yeah, it was a very eye-opening experience, and I can't imagine going through a transplant again without that help, mm-hmm. without that the other things that I had, the music therapy, the healing touch, the Reiki, the massage therapy. Uh, there were some other therapies too, but I can't, I can't remember. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they were all very, they were all very good and very instrumental in me being mentally more stable and being able to take on each day uh, by doing those things. Cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> Never heard about that before. It's like, oh man, they should do that everywhere. I mean, they had a child psychologist coming in and somebody should just, you know, make sure that I got up and did a little jumping around and stuff like that while I was at the hospital during my transplantation. Yeah. I mean, but then again, it's like 200 years ago, so probably <laughs> things have changed since then. I did <laughs> have PT too. Yeah, I had a physical therapist come in or someone that just wanted me to mm. get around and move. And I actually didn't like that much because I didn't like being told what to do. I didn't like having someone come in and tell me, hey, you should do this. Like, Why am I not surprised by that? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like that, but when they came in and, you know, we worked with music or, you know, they did massage therapy or something like that, I really enjoyed that. And I'm not going to, you know, say that PT wasn't important because it is important to move mm. and walk around. I just didn't like being told what to do. <laughs> Fully get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about all this... How did the, when did you really start to feel that, okay, I'm actually going to go through this and it's going to be good. I'm going to get out on the other side feeling a lot better. That took, oh my goodness. Because I was almost, I was, a lot of the time I was living very presently. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't thinking really far into the future uh, about how I was going to feel uh, later on. Or you know how it was going to be, how it was going to be breaking down, or maybe analyzing, you could say, the things that would happen to me while mm. they were happening to me, but in the future, like how I would feel. I was very concerned with you know a lot of times what was happening now and what I could be doing now and then mm-hmm. to help further, uh, you know, further helping me get through it. And that's what really helped me get through it was living so presently, and uh, you know not not thinking about too far into the future or or too far into my past or anything like that. Hmm. But yeah, it was just a certain mind state that I had while I was going through it. And I was also very supported by, you know, those integrative therapists that I was, you know, telling you about. Yeah. And uh, they, they provided me with a lot of support and I can't, you know, thank them enough for what they were able to provide me with while I was in the hospital. But, you know, I had things that, you know, that I would turn to, I would, you know, I listened to a lot of music when I was in the hospital. I, didn't play any video games. I don't know. I wasn't really into video games at that time, but uh, but yeah, it was just a certain mind state, I guess that I that I had. If, if that answers the question, I really wasn't. It wasn't like an. It kind of naturally came. It wasn't like I had to really think about how I was going to get through all of it. It was mm-hmm. just like there was only you know one option: either get through it or not get through it. And I. <laughs> I planned on getting through it. That's what I planned on. But, but not saying that that state of mind made me get through it. But what I think about, when did you realize that the worst part was over? 
Ah, uh, dang. It took a long time. Yeah. It took a very, because at first, you know, I thought it was after I was, I was like at day 35 and, you know, I hadn't gotten out of the hospital and I was on the up and, you know, I was on hmm. the up and out. Like I was, you know, doing some exercising. Like I'm like, I got through my transplant. I did have a, I thought, you know, at that time I thought, you know, I had still had a tough, tough transplant, hmm. but I wasn't at all thinking, you know, what was going to happen to me later on in the next month or so. Hmm. I did not expect that, that, you know, expect that to happen. And, uh, so we know after the GVHD and reading those statistics, like I told you about, I mm-hmm. wasn't sure when I was going to be able to come out on the other side of it. Cause I was still, I mean, even today I still take, you know, 10, 12 medications a day, maybe, maybe a little less than that. Okay. But, that's, that's uh, a lot actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I still take a lot of things, but it slowly has been coming. Things have been coming off. And I think now, yeah, cause I've, yeah. Whenever you think that you're in a comfortable position, at least in my experience with me, something, you know, medically usually has happened. Mm. So it seems like I never, I never feel completely ahead of things. If I feel like I'm learning to live with things and learning to live within them, mm. but as far as, get, as far as getting past everything, I think I still deal with that today. I still think I deal with, you know, uh, you know, the medical complications that, you know, derived from my, my bone marrow transplant. And it can take people three, four, five years. Uh, so it's still very real to you. You don't feel like, like you're, you're past it. You're in the process of getting over it. Yes, yes. That's, mm. yeah, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm definitely, I'm definitely not through it yet. I'm in a lot better space, mm. a lot better place. But I, I still, you know, I've had things happen to me even in the past six months that were very... <laughs> Very dangerous, and uh, you know, could have turned out bad. So, so with, with all this, with all you have been through, I mean, mm-hmm. like most of us who have been through a lot of these things, uh, mm-hmm. death. I usually talk about that mm-hmm. in the podcast yep. because of the name. <laughs> yeah. Surprise! No, yeah. I know you've been listening to the others, but yeah, what thoughts have you had regarding death? I mean, in this situation you have been in, I mean, even though you try to take it day by day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much and have this been part of your thought of I frame? Mean, it has been such a learning experience. There mm. was times when I was 19, 20, you know, three or four years after diagnosis where I thought I had things figured out. Mm-hmm. I thought that I, you know, I had my concrete kind of, not maybe not concrete. I was still learning then too. But I thought, you know, I was... I had confronted death in my mind in that I was, you know, if it were to happen, then I would be, I would be ready for it. That I had things figured out. Mm. And then, you know, my transplant came and I started to look at things a little bit, a little bit differently. I mean, death became more real. It mm-hmm. became a lot more real. Like before it was all, you know, in my mind, but you know, then I started to experience things that, you know, that, that can kill you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I started, I started looking at things, I guess a little bit differently. And that also class that I took on death and dying, I think also, uh, influenced me to an extent, uh, on the way that I look at the way I look at death, because for, I guess what, what we live with every day, uh, mm-hmm. most people would consider a nightmare. Like most I people, think you're right about that. if, if you would take like a normal, like, I guess, sane person without like any much health complications 
and you were to tell them that they were going to be diagnosed with this disease and that the, what the outlook and the, what it looked like, they would be like, that is a nightmare. That's mm-hmm. they're living with the nightmare. But, uh, what we've, you know, we've come to realize by living with it, uh, that it, you know, it isn't a nightmare. It's, it's an anxiety that, that gets, that can get to us, but we, that, that, that we live with this and, uh, we live with the, I guess we live with the more, uh, I guess a more plain to see imminency of death, Hmm. (laughs) I guess like everybody kind of knows that they're going to die, but we, you know, we can wake up in the morning and, you know, kind of see our death. Like we know what, what probably is going to kill us. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's not a very, it's not a very comforting feeling. Oh no, definitely not. uh, Yeah, it can definitely, it can definitely be a bad thing, but it also forces us to confront death and a much earlier time usually mm-hmm. than other people. And we, we start to learn with this, like learn about this, this thought of death. I mean, this is why I say it's a learning experience because I'm even still learning to this day, uh, you know, my, my thoughts on death. But, uh, you talked about the yeah. class you took. Uh, I found that very interesting actually that yeah, you would dive into something like that because of the situation. Yeah. You're in. I mean, yeah, and I learned about other cultures and how they treat death and how they don't they see it more as, you know, an inevitability, a celebration of life, I guess, you know, like mm. with what happens when you die, but happiness, well, I'm not going to get to happiness yet because you're because <laughs> that's the other part of it. But I will say that I I'm a big fan of the yin, the yin and the yang symbol. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the good within the bad, the bad and the good. Uh and I guess I just know that this this fear of death and like this this how life is can be so scary mm-hmm. is is a natural thing and instead of you know trying to run away from it which I've done before you know trying to distract myself in any way possible and I think that's how most people do it even people that don't live with a rare disease they every day they're they're usually doing something they have a technique that they use to to almost numb the situation Mm-hmm. Numb the thought of death, whether it's through substances, you know, people abuse substances, whether it's through work, whether it's through exercise. People, I mean, these some of these things are bad for you and some of these things, you know, people seem to be good for you. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these these people are doing these things and it it helps take them away from death. It helps take them away from the thought of it, at least. Uh, almost as kind of a distraction. And... I think, you know, just with us having this rare disease, we we think about it a lot, maybe maybe more often, mm-hmm. but we're also learning how to talk about it and learning how to, I guess, deal with, with its inevitability. Because some days, some days I feel completely fine with my, you know, with me dying. I'm like, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. it's an inevitable thing. I've come to accept it. And then some days, you know, I'm, I'm anxious and I'm like, you know, kind of fearful and like, almost feel like, I can't, you know, I have to live in this comfortable little bubble. But the problem is, is that bubble becomes not comfortable and it becomes not comfortable <laughs> anymore. Or uh, like I'm just sitting there ruminating in that space. And I think that it's really good that we, you know, we bring up this topic and we talk about it because everybody, I feel at least everybody, most people, 90, probably 99% of people deal with this, this struggle, this anxiety of knowing the inevitability of our death. Uh, and how, I guess, how we can 
in a lot of ways, people, I mean, a lot of, in a lot of ways, hide from it. Hmm. But I think the best way is to not hide from it, to bring it up like you're doing in this in this podcast, which is, I think, is probably one of my favorite segments in it, is actually talking about it. Because uh, it's, it matters to us. I mean, when, when I got... Uh, it's the same situation you were in here, actually. I mean, when I, uh, when you got the GVHD, uh, mm-hmm. when I got the cancer, I looked up like 60% of those who start getting uh, mouth cancers mm-hmm. uh, won't be here uh, two, more than two years after. And a nice doctor also told me back then that if you want to do something with your life, do it now. And if you have the chance to... Uh, if you're a betting man and you could take... <laughs> and I could give you five years in advance now you should definitely take that bet. I mean, that's five years ago. So how how should I, how would I not think about death? Of course I will. And and even if I, I don't feel sad, I, I don't feel I am walking around fearing it all the time, but it has mm-hmm. been like a companion for me for a long time. I mean, I know it's going to happen probably sooner than I would like it to be. But as you say, yeah. we try to... Um, Find a way to live with it without it taking over, and we it, yeah. maybe it's getting more comfortable for some of us. The more we talk about it, I mean, yeah, it's gonna happen, and it's probably gonna be real ugly. Um, but I have to wait to deal with it until I'm there. Yeah, and I f- I feel like death is also to a certain extent it's pushing us. It's pushing us to be as good as, as we can be, because we know that life, we know that life is fragile. Mm -hmm. And I feel that, you know, death is our, is the, what is it called? Memento Mori (laughs) (laughs) is the reminder that it's there and that we have this life and that it's very precious and fragile and that we should be making the best out of our time as we possibly can. Because I mean, it's kind of bringing up the point of like how boring and sad mere lives could be if we were immortal. Like if, if we lived in the same body in the same like this and we knew that we were going to live forever and ever and ever and ever, I think our life would get pretty boring. I think that society, I think you're right. <laughs> I think society would kind of de- deteriorate because we would get so bored with life. There'd be nothing that would be pushing us to accomplish it because it would just be, you know, we have forever. <laughs> we have forever to do everything. We'd probably, probably be very lazy and, uh, yeah, we wouldn't. We wouldn't be pushing ourselves, and uh, I think you have a good point there. <laughs> I, I know I would be lazy as beep if I was in that situation, probably. <laughs> no, but but I know for a fact that I spent a lot of my life. I did live, and I did. I do think I had a good life, but I rushed. I wasn't really pushing myself. I've done a lot more with my life the last five years than I did the last fifteen years before that. Mm-hmm. After I found out about Franconi and Megan, after I got the cancer, I mean, it's just a totally different ball game you're in suddenly. And I'm not trying to uh, go out and save the world every day. Mm-hmm. And maybe I should if I was a better human being. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be a little better, a little nicer to the people around me. Mm-hmm. I try to uh, do these small things every now and then. And as often as possible, to make people around me more happy, mm-hmm. make them feel better. I mean, I, I can be honest. I've had a lot of anger issues before. I had I have a big temperament, definitely. <laughs> but 
over the last five years and maybe even more so in the last year after I got my son, I've become a lot better at being like, just let go. It doesn't matter. Would I rather yeah, be it, right and be mad about something or would I like to just see people around me being happy? I mean, mm-hmm. does it really matter? I mean, if the bus is running late, it used to pisses me off so much. <laughs> now it's like, who cares? There, yeah, there'll be things. another one. I can spend the time here uh, on my phone or calling a friend. or You know, I just spend the time better instead of being... Uh, Instead of taking all these small confrontation every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really think it helps put things, like I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it helps put things in perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it helps us kind of zoom back, like zoom way back and look at the world and see just the how those things don't matter, how they're just minute little things. Mm-hmm. And we will rem- r- like ruminate over them. Like you said, like the like the bus thing or something like that. We just ruminate over them for you know an hour or more, <laughs> and that's an hour that we have just gave to that thought. And it, when you think about it, like from the broader scale, it's like unbelievable that <laughs> we we devote that much time to to sitting in anger and like ruminating over something that small. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I'm saying because I I do it too, but uh, I think it's human. We all do it, but. I should say, put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think us as as individuals who live with, uh, you know, a terminal illness, I think we teach people, we don't even, we might not know it and we we might not really think about it, but we teach people about the fragility of life. And they, they almost look to us as a reflection of how one should be living their life. Because they, they know that, you know, we have this, not everybody, but people that are close to us know that we have this mm. rare condition or rare disease that may inevitably, you know, cut our time shorter than other people's. And they know that, uh, you know, we've been confronted with death much earlier than what they probably would be confronted. And they're almost looking to us as a reflection of how they might feel when, you know, they're faced with, with death, which they inevitably mm. will. And that's why I think people find us so inspirational because they, in that moment, they can't imagine themselves dealing it, dealing with it like we do. But it's because it's never happened to them. They, you know, they can't really conceive that. But they look at us as someone, you know, that is dealing is that is that, that's living with these problems, and they, you know, they just think it's it's spectacular because they can't imagine themselves living with you know something like what what we have the way that we do. And I, I agree. I mean, if we can be an inspiration to other people, that that's fantastic. I mean, then it serves a purpose. I am of the opinion that there's a reason for everything that happens in life. I know many people don't agree with that, and that's totally fine. I'm not going to get into big discussions online with people regarding that. But I believe that there's a reason for everything that happens. So... If something happens to me, I'm in this situation because I'm the type of person who can handle it and they could use it to spread something positive. I mean, some people be like, oh, why, why does this happen to me? I haven't had that thought for so many years. I mean, why does it happen to me? Yeah, 
I, I, I definitely I would be happy if I didn't have Franconi anemia or I didn't have to deal with cancers. Of course I would. I would love that. But at yeah. the same time, I know I'm strong enough to handle this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm strong enough to use it for something positive. So maybe yeah, that's why I, why it's me and not somebody else. I mean, and no, I was just going to say that I have, I have similar sentiments, even though, I mean, there's some, there's some cases where I, there's some things that happen in life that are so terrible mm. and, uh, so, uh, so just not, not right that I, it's hard for me to put the label of them happening for a reason on mm. them. Uh, I do believe everything happens, everything happens. And it's about how we react to that, uh, about how yeah how we react to that that happening or what happens and how we react to it I think that's the very important part mm. and what separates people from other people is how they react to situations. But it's yeah, I guess it's hard for me to get on board with a reason like maybe <laughs> like well a reason like yeah cause and effect but like for a divine like a divine purpose or divine reason I don't I don't it's hard for me to believe that. No, uh, I agree. Yeah, instances. you're regarding that. I'm not like into. The- something divine or anything. But I just mean, if... I look at it this way. When my mom died of cancer, mm-hmm. it was terrible for me and my family. Of course yeah. it was. I mean, she was the one who really brought us all together. And to me and my dad and my brothers, it was a nightmare. But at the same mm-hmm. time, after she passed away, we have gotten a lot closer than we ever was. I didn't have a very good relationship with my dad. I didn't... uh, I can say that now because I have a very, very good relationship with him today. He's... I feel like he's almost one of my best friends beside being my dad. But back then, I didn't respect him a lot. And uh, because it was always my mom who took care of everything. So I didn't really know who he was. Mm -hmm. I also have a... I have an older brother with some... uh, mental conditions and I didn't really spend time because with him but after that we start to taking care of each other in a on a whole different level so even if uh, I would prefer that it didn't happen to my mom I still think it had some positive effects on our whole family so Mm -hmm. that is what I mean even if something bad happens something good can come out of it and it usually does spread something something good even though you sometimes have to look hard to find it. Yes, and I I believe in that too. I believe that that tragedy brings can bring out the best in people. I guess mm-hmm. uh, it brings out our best our our best qualities during you know tragic tragic times or in times when we have to really come together and rely on each other for support because we realize that you know it's it's essential that we do that for mm-hmm. our, for our well being like. Um, just having to sit with the having to sit with some some things by yourself that that is incredibly hard and can be incredibly damaging but when you have people around you and you have people around you that are going through a common tragedy they can kind of they can come together and they bring out the best uh, the best qualities in each other mm-hmm. and I think that's also I mean there's a lot of terrible things that happen uh, in people's lives you know people die young people die kids children die and it's hard to say, like, like, it's hard to say everything happens for a reason, but a lot of times these tragedies, they teach us about, hmm. 
like how fragile life is and how we need to be how we need to be making the best out of our time and how we also need to be really caring for other people because when we experience a tragedy we realize how emotionally difficult that is to go through mm. and if that happens to us you know that probably happens to other people and it is happening to other people and we have to you know we have to be here for each other to to you know help at least try to comfort people in those in those times because it happens everybody is going to face some type of tragedy oh yeah and uh knowing what that feels like to go through something is very you know really important in understanding how important just us being there and you know helping someone not feel so alone how important that is hmm. so, so maybe yeah. maybe the way you put it is a better way of explaining it Uh, yeah, it's a better way than just saying everything happened for a reason. Yeah, I yeah, like I like your perspective on it. Yeah, yeah. The phrase the phrase could you know it, it can be true, but it's it has it's associated with other things too mm. that a lot of people think of when you say the phrase. So that's like right where their their mind will go. And um, yeah, usually you know people will put up their defenses when you know they hear that. And I I completely understand. <laughs> I understand and, uh, that that's, too, but yeah. that's what. Yeah, it took me a lot of words to ex explain how I feel about it, but and I can't just come up with it. I guess if I were to say one phrase, it would just be everything happens. But uh, but yeah, it's about how we react to those situations and how mm. we react in those times. But mm. yeah, <laughs> that was food for thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but I want to jump into the. The third part of this podcast. We're going to talk about happiness. And yeah. uh, you, you have been listening to some of the other episodes. And mm -hmm. happiness doesn't have to be like going on this wild, crazy uh, three-year trip where you uh, visit every country in the world or mm -hmm. anything. But I mean, what is happiness to you? How do you, how do you stay sane? How do you stay happy? How, what do you do to, to feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. Really, I guess happiness to me is really living in the moment, is really feeling the feeling the ebbs and the flows of each of each moment uh, is because when you're when you're living in the moment, you completely forget about the past mm -hmm. and the future. And a lot of times, you know, the future, you know, the future is anxiety and the past is is like trauma. So we, a hmm. lot of times when we look back, sometimes, you know, there's good things embedded in the past. Oh, that was a good way to put it, actually, uh, yeah. And in the future. But a lot of times, you know, we go back to visit those places for, for not <laughs> so good things. Uh, so for me, living in, like, the moment, which isn't easy to just say that you just live in the moment. Like, no, that's it's not that easy. But uh, oh, It's a learning process, really, definitely, to most of us. That, And there's things that bring me to the moment, which mm. was what I was gonna like, uh, like music, mm -hmm. and uh, riding my bike, and things like that. They bring me into the moment. I shift my focus, and I'm, you know, when I'm riding my bike, I'm thinking about, oh, where's the next turn? Where's the next, you know, if I'm mountain biking, or when I'm doing music, I'm really, in 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 music, I actually when I'm listening, mm -hmm. I usually am. You know, I am there. It's different from, I guess, listening to something recorded that someone puts on iTunes or Spotify than listening to something live. I think those are actually two different experiences, but they both can bring you into the into the present moment and, uh, you know, into your feelings, like feeling emotions as they come mm -hmm. and feeling those emotions. Like when you have, you know, a great song 
come through your ears and you get those you get those chills you're completely encapsulated by that moment you're not thinking about oh what am I gonna eat for dinner tomorrow like you're not thinking about those things you're completely encapsulated in the moment Mm -hmm. and things like music riding my bike uh pictures I take I do photography so when I'm photographing somebody or in something in nature like I'm completely shifted into what that person I almost completely forget I exist sometimes I'm just focused on that person and I'm, you know, just almost, you know, just looking at them and, and, and seeing them or, or, you know, kind of focused on my camera settings too. Like what kind of depth of field do I want to use mm-hmm. to create what I want people to see? And it's completely, you know, it's, it's removing me from those thoughts, those negative thoughts, that, that anxiety, that kind of, you know, encapsulate a, an individual from, from time to time. Mm-hmm. It's all about know how often are we in that anxious state how often are we in that you know looking towards the future and looking at it with you know with with anxiety i think that really determines how i guess happy we are i guess someone that's looking into the future often uh and looking at it with anxiety they're probably not a very happy person they're probably a very anxious person but those who are doing things and you know focused on on their their work or whatever and this is what i mentioned earlier how some people run away from the thought of death, but sometimes it's Mm. not really running away. It's knowing it's a conscious knowing that me doing this is going to make me, uh, remove my, myself from those thoughts. And it's not always a negative thing. So, so yeah, happiness to me, I guess, is Liz living is living in the, in the moment. That's where a lot of the happiness is found. And I don't, to be perpetually happy, (laughs) I don't think is possible and I don't think would be a very good life just because I don't think we would I don't think we would appreciate happiness if we were happy all the time. We wouldn't understand how valuable it is and how uh how much, you know, we work to attain. It's not like cuz I don't think happiness is something that we work to attain. Happiness is something that we can live with right now, that we can have right now, but we're thinking that in order to attain it, we have to have, you know, some material object to bring us that happiness. And, uh, you know, most of the time when we achieve, you know, we get that car, we get that house, or we get that mm-hmm. thing that we think is going to bring us happiness. We realize, Oh, that's all along. That's not really what gave me the happiness, but maybe it was the pursuit of getting that. Maybe it was the pursuit was the happy was, was the state that I was existing in. So I think happiness is a state that we exist in from time to time, but I don't think it's something that is to be attained attained. Uh, I mean, you can have a happy life infinite. without being happy all the time. I mean, oh, absolutely. I, I look yeah. at it this way because when when I take an overview of my life, I live, I live a pretty good life, I think. I, I'm happy most of the time, and I, I feel like I'm a happy human being. I'm positive. I have a lot of good things going on. I get to make this podcast. I get to love... I make a Danish podcast too with gaming, mm-hmm. which I love. Uh, mm-hmm. I've done a lot of things that I really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean that I'm running around smiling every day at every situation. And I mean, I have feelings like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I just try to like have this minimum level of happiness in my life by being good mm-hmm. to my wife, to my kids, to my dog, and mm-hmm. have have some good friendships with people. Mm-hmm. And if that's there... I mean, I don't have to run around laughing and 
and trying to pretend to be happy all the time. Yeah. I mean, happiness can be many things. I actually think we have had some pretty good discussion also on this podcast with the different people about what is happiness to you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so when you mentioned this about music <laughs> and stuff, I mean, when I have a, a good piece of music I want to listen to, mm-hmm. and I have mm-hmm. some uh, different playlists depending on my mood, mm-hmm. I love to, to be able to sit down, close my eyes and listen to music. It just gets me on a whole different level. And it doesn't matter. Sometimes I have this, I want to have this sad feeling. Because it's mm-hmm. healthy for me emotionally to deal with. And I do that through music a lot. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, I think you bring up a good point of us. Sometimes we kind of cherish our our sadness. <laughs> we kind of we respect our sadness in a way that we know that our sadness is going to bring us mm-hmm. more happiness later on just by just by the contrast that it's creating. But that because I do the same thing. I'll I mean I listen to a lot of very like sorrowful like indie rock or old old indie rock and stuff like that. When I'm in a bad mood or when I'm not feeling too good, because I'm also connecting with that music. I'm I'm feeling uh me and that that music's vibration or that music's energy is connecting. That's I feel much more closer to that state than if I were to throw on a really happy song. It would almost feel like it was mocking me. So oh, yeah. I don't like I agree with you. Like I. Yeah, when I'm not, I almost find a pleasure in being sad. I don't really know how to explain it sometimes, but but like I'll listen to the music, like the you know like the sad or more sorrowful music, mm-hmm. and I'll connect with it too. And yeah, <laughs> but uh, for me it's like that. It's just a way to deal with it. I mean, when I put down my headphones, I'm almost back to normal again afterwards. Mm-hmm. But that ten minutes or half an hour, an hour, I spent. On these, this music and letting my emotions take over, it's gold to me. I love it because then I get it out of my system. I mean, yeah. When when we deal with a terminal disease, we lose people around us. We hear about people who's doing bad, and terrible things happens to them. Even if they survive, it can be some really dire situations, and and if I. I can't deal with that in my everyday life. I can't think about that every single day. So instead I take out these moments where I let myself feel the sorrow, be sad, thinking about these things, and just let go of the emotions. Yeah, and I think that's that's a way to address to address our emotions hmm. and uh because what happens when we push them away often they usually come back tenfold. Oh, yeah, yeah, allowing us allowing us that time to really kind of just sit and like bask in our emotion and like mm-hmm. feel it out. It creates a release, like you're saying. You feel so much better after after mm-hmm. listening to that music. So there's only one thing that's better to me than music, and that is food. I love when I go out <laughs> and get some really really good food. And as far as I remember, wasn't you who loved this foe? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I absolutely. remember it correctly. You know, when you sit down, you get. Some really good stuff like that, mm-hmm. and you take the first mouthful, and you just close your eyes, and just taste mm. it. Oh man, that's living. <laughs> that that's yeah, that's how ex- my first experience with pho was was like 
Well, I was kind of amazed when I first, because I, I mean, not all pho is good. You know, that's what I've realized. Mm. Eating all around the United States, different places pho. Not all pho is like great pho. But uh, the first bowl of pho that I had was like a, I was so surprised. I was like, what did I just taste? Like mm-hmm. that tasted so good that I don't really believe my, like what's going on in my, my taste buds. So I ate more and I was like, I was getting the same feeling. And yeah, ever since then, uh, pho has been like a staple for me. It's been something that I've reached. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel wholesome. It makes me, it doesn't mess my stomach up a majority of the time. <laughs> a few times it, it has, but that's because, you know, I eat all around the United States, different bowls. And sometimes I just get something I probably shouldn't have ate, but, uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a journey in itself. And that's something I also find solace in too, is traveling around and eating at these different places, these holes in the wall a lot of the time that I'm looking for, uh, just cause I love to be surprised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, we, me and my wife, we have, we, we usually tra- try to travel a lot. And usually when I go to a new place, I never look for the food I know from home. I want to taste the yeah. local food. Mm-hmm. I want to have, I want, I want to taste new spices, different ways of doing things. I mean, if I'm going to the States, I want to eat what you're eating. If I'm going to mm-hmm. Taiwan, I want to go down and get some really good street food, things mm-hmm. I have no clue what is. But if people is lining up together, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go into that line. I'm going to taste it. I don't care what it is. I just need this experience. And to me, that's, oh, I love that. <laughs> that's that's how I feel too. But in the thing in the states, like our <laughs> our our normal food to me really isn't that good. So I'm looking for. I mean, pizza is good, but pizza isn't even. I mean, that's not. It wasn't born in America. But but you know what I mean. I'm looking for other places where other cultures are existing because you know America is a big mm-hmm. melting pot. I'm looking places where other cultures are existing, and then I can get a taste of that of that, of that culture and what they're experiencing, you know, pretty much every, every day probably. And that, that's just what, yeah, what amazes me is food is art. Like the way that they put together food, the way they're pairing spices, uh, it's usually for a reason too, the way that they do things, different cultures do things. And you can learn a lot about a culture by the food that they eat. And, uh, yeah, that's something that I'm still interested in and may explore down the road is going into different restaurants and, hopefully being able to learn more about their culture from what they're, you know, what they're eating, what they're cooking, how they make things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of already been done, you know, with Anthony Bourdain and stuff like that, but it's so interesting. And yeah, I've always feel pretty fulfilled after I have a good, a good food experience. And if it's not, then I learned something. <laughs> oh yeah. You can learn from that too. <laughs> I think I, I used to say I only have one thing I don't eat at all, and that's curly flour. That is my kryptonite. That is. <laughs> what is it? Uh, curly flour. That is my kryptonite. Oh, I, ca- cauliflower. I can't. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> is, is that what you? Is that what you? Is that what it is? Cauliflower. Yeah. Yep. But yep. it's just said differently there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's. <laughs> I cauliflower, but mine's peanut butter because I'm allergic to it. <laughs> oh, I, I, but that's a good reason. Or peanuts, yeah. To me, it's like I've been tasting things from all over the world, and uh, it's the only thing I can think of (laughs) that I find really utterly disgusting. (laughs) 
I mean, I've tried some very weird stuff, like this thousand-year egg or whatever it's called in Asia, where people are like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so disgusting. It's like, yeah, it was good. It was not my favorite, but it was okay. I mean, <laughs> I've tried worms. Yeah. Not something I will eat every day. I admit <laughs> that, but it wasn't really terrible. It was like, yeah, okay, I've tried it. I mean, was it just a plain worm, or was it like seasoned? It was seasoned, yeah. Oh, okay. I was wondering if they just like here's a worm. No, no, yeah. it was just like a snack. Uh, and so. being in Europe too, you're you're closer to like you know the pure source of the food of where different cultures are coming from. So uh, sometimes yeah, it's good. Sometimes it's disappointing. We went to uh, Rome last year. And uh, I was like, oh, I haven't been in Italy since I was a child. And I wanted to get a really good pizza. Mm-hmm. And I was so utterly disappointed. We went to oh, three dear. different places within that week. And we were so disappointed, both of us, when we were there, me and my wife. We were like, okay, I could find better at home or in, a, in the U.S. or in England. It was like, nah. Dang, yeah. That, that would be disappointing, going right to the source like that. But also those places too, like I guess, I mean, they, maybe they find it good or maybe it's like a tourist area where they're like, okay, we're going to cut, we're going to cut down on, you know, the, the, what, what we would usually do just because we know we're getting tourists to come here. But I think it's also <laughs> like we are used to a, a specific way of making pizzas. Mm-hmm. So it's not the, maybe they're, the way they make it is of course the original and I think most Italian will find it delicious. But mm-hmm. now they like to keep it simple, and I enjoy that even. But mm-hmm. I think it's just that I grew up, all of us in the Western world grew up in pizza, no matter where we're from. So I have mm-hmm. my palate of how it is supposed to taste. I mean, it tastes a lot of childhood memories. So when I get something yeah. in Italy and it's different, you know, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, taste and smell is connected to our to our. We'll taste something and we'll you know go back mm-hmm. to a certain time. And we'll be able to almost relive that for a second, like a, yeah, like ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, so yeah. everybody out there for going all foodie, yeah, but I just remembered that, that, that you like film. And we talked about. It, I was like, yeah, we need to talk about this. Oh yeah, yeah. I wish I could go to Vietnam and really get it get it there. Oh yeah, food is happening sometimes. List. <laughs> but it's a good thing yeah. you can eat in under almost any circumstances so that's yeah, a little part you can enjoy no matter what happens and with going through yeah going through my my transplant there was uh i did come to realize and sometimes i forget about it food eating being able to eat and being able to actually taste food is like is almost like a privilege it's we mm-hmm. need to really cherish our our ability to eat and be able to taste different foods because there's some people that that can't you know they can't eat they're either fed through a feeding tube or maybe they they can't taste foods and it's something when I lost it when I wasn't able to eat mm-hmm. that I realized how important it was to me to be able to eat mm-hmm. was once I lost it I was like oh my goodness eating is the best thing like food is the best thing ever <laughs> because I didn't have it Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know really what I had until I didn't have it. So that yeah. is usually how it goes. Actually, with a lot of things in life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want. I want to ask you one like mm-hmm. last question. Okay. Now you've been through a lot already. We talked mm-hmm. a little about what the future might hold and 
how you find happiness. What, I mean, when you got your uh, bone marrow transplantation, you were in the start 20s? Isn't that right? 22. 22. Yep, 22. 22 when I had so my transplant. Yeah. you have just, you are what people consider a young man. I'm I'm the old dude, okay? You're the young man. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you give to other young people in, in your situation? They don't have to have Fanconi anemia, but, you know, who deal with some kind of terminal disease or chronic disorder. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's, I hear it's a lot, a lot of people have some problems with dealing with this, about being young and now in reality you should be out doing like what your peers does, but suddenly you have to deal with this. What advice could you give some of the young people? Because, and maybe that's just me. I see you as a very strong person because the way you are dealing with all this, mm-hmm. I mean, you're doing good. Everything yeah. considered. Yeah, yeah. In con- with, with in conjunction to my situation mm-hmm. and the things I've been to, I guess I am doing. You know, I am doing pretty good. But yeah, that's that's a really good question, and I think it's it's also a really tough question because I have found my. I have found my own ways to, you know, to live and mm. to, and to, you know, move through things and move through life. Uh, and it's hard for me to tell people like, oh, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. And yeah, that's, that is a hard question, but mm. there's a few things that I've learned that I think have been instrumental in kind of getting me to where I am now, I guess. And that one thing is uncertainty well, I, I guess here's here's what the the phrase is: is that the only thing that's certain is uncertainty, hmm. and that's something that I really have grasped onto because I've had so many things, so many things that are against the odds happen to me, against oh that shouldn't happen because that's rare or that shouldn't hmm. happen because you know that usually doesn't happen. So many things that have happened to me that you know usually wouldn't happen to a normal like normal person or what they would say would normally happen, and I have really learned that uncertainty is what really gives our life flavor, I guess. It's it's not knowing what's going to happen next, but kind of being excited about it because we are we are in the story, like we are in this, I guess, book kind of. And I mean, we kind of, we're not really the authors because a lot of things, things are happening to us and we are reacting. Hmm. So a lot of times we're not writing out every single detail, but we do have control how we react to things and how we react to those uncertain things. And to me, you know, like that uncertainty is kind of exciting. Uh, we wouldn't, I guess, like comparing life to a book. If we knew the end, you know, if we knew the end of our own book, we knew how exactly it was going to end. We knew the pages leading up to and everything. Mm. I think that, you know, we would, <laughs> we would probably not be very happy with that. We don't want to read a book. <laughs> that we already know the ending to. We usually, if we know the ending, we're like, oh, it's not worth reading. So I guess just kind of being willing to accept, you know, a lot of uncertainty that is going to happen to us, but embrace that uncertainty to really, to really be excited about the future and what's going to happen, no matter what it is, because we're, I guess we're in control of how we react to those situations. And we're going to experience. That's a good way to put it, yeah. We're, we are going to experience sadness. We are going to experience happiness. We're going to experience all the emotions. And I think once we accept that, you know, we kind of, uh, we can appreciate everything that's happened to us, even if it's bad. 
which is hard to, you know, hard to tell somebody that maybe just went through something really bad. But, you know, you're, you're going to experience happiness again on a certain level. And don't be, don't be, don't be ashamed to experience that happiness if you just went through something really bad. Some people think that, oh, maybe they, they shouldn't be experiencing happiness because they have just went through something so tragic or something bad has happened to someone that they, that they love. Uh, don't feel ashamed to, you know, feel that happiness because that's, that's what's supposed to, we're supposed to be feeling happiness. We're supposed to be feeling sadness. We're supposed to be feeling all the emotions. So I guess, I guess my, yeah, that'd be, that'd be my advice is just to roll as as some would say, like to roll with the punches, Mm. (laughs) to roll with the things that are being thrown at you and just keep, keep going on because bad things are going to happen to you. Good things are going to happen to you. Uh, yeah, many things, many things are going to happen to you. I mean, in reality, it will happen if it happens. The only difference is how you look upon it and how you react mm -hmm. to what's happening. Yeah. And don't, don't compare your situation to other people's situations Mm. too much. I mean, we already, since I even heard this in the last podcast that, uh, you know, as humans, we naturally kind of try to analyze things and compare Mm. ourselves to other people. And we're always going to do that. But don't get some expectation that, you know, life is going to turn out this way or this something's going to happen. Don't have that expectation. Don't expect it to happen. Because ultimately, expectation and not meeting those expectations, that leads to letdown. Mm -hmm. Like, we'll be let down if, you know, if we don't achieve, like, what we thought we were going to achieve. Or this doesn't happen to us because that happened to somebody else. That should be happening to us. No, that's... That's an unrealistic expectation, and you know we're probably not going to meet those expectations. But we do, like you said, we we do control like how we yeah how we f- react to a situation, how we feel about a situation. But comparing ourselves to others and different things are is going to lead to a lot of letdown. I know we naturally do it, but you know expecting something to happen, uh, yeah, that a lot of times it leads to us, you know, being let down or feeling that we weren't good enough. And usually, when reality is just usually different. real life can live <laughs> up to our expectations, even if it's good or bad. I mean, we always mm-hmm. build it worse or better in our heads anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I've yeah, <laughs> I like looking. Some people like to look at life as a as a fight, which I've heard a lot. You know, uh, looking at you know we're fighting this disease or we're fighting we're fighting for for freedom, and that's it's it's applicable in some situations. In my situation, I don't think it's you know as applicable. I, I see myself more so dancing with my illness hmm. uh, than fighting with it. It's me rolling with you know doing the certain steps to help ease into certain situations, but not fighting something because fa anemia is a part of me. It's ingrained in my DNA. It's a part of. It might not be who I am, but it's definitely part of it. It definitely has affected me in a way that has changed the course of my life, and I have to acknowledge it for doing that and uh you know bringing good and bad things into my life that's a very interesting way to look at it actually yeah and it's something that i that i can't fight and actually i got the sentiment towards living with fa from you know a well-known person that lived with fa amy fraunmeyer she was really the uh the essence of what i felt like this was she was you know a person that would walk into a room really and just light up a room because she was so (laughs) She she radiated like peace and you know warmthness and mm. uh, she looked at life more in living with FA uh, as a dance than a fight. Uh, I think that she has a quote 
uh, where it goes, I owe it to myself and this world to pursue with all my heart the things I can do to make this life beautiful. I will never be able to control all the music. I am simply learning how to dance this life with a little more grace. And uh, Beautiful put, yeah. And she, that's that's her direct quote. Hmm. And all the stuff that she had lived through, you know, losing, losing her two sisters uh, had to be incredibly hard, but she was still learning how to live with life and how to, how she explained it, dance with it, which I, I, I absolutely love uh, that she looked at it that way and she explained it that way mm. instead of a fight. Ah, so, I love yeah. that way of thinking about it. <laughs> Kyle, it has been such mm -hmm. a pleasure having you here. Why haven't <laughs> we done this before? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was looking forward to it and I really, I, I wanted to be on this podcast because I was like this, is the podcast that I want to be on in that. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved all the people that you, you have brought on and I've loved hearing their stories. And I think it's so important what you're, what you're doing right now. Thank you so much. And I hope we can bring many more people up, but I've really been looking forward to this. To hear your side of the story, hear mm -hmm. you tell about what you've been through, because I do yeah. think that everybody can learn from this and I hope they do. Yeah. I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining. And to everybody out there, remember to to like this or give us a good review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast from. It really helps us a lot reaching more viewers because then we're getting higher up on the on the scales and it's easier for people to find the podcast. So we would very much appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me and everybody out there. See you soon again in 14 days. We'll be back with a new episode. Take care. Peace be the journey. Thank you for listening to tonight's episode of Life, Death and Happiness. If you like this, please do us a big favor and head over to iTunes, Overcast, Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast from and subscribe to us. If you also give us a good rating, it will help us a lot reaching much more people. So I will appreciate that a lot too. Also, you can of course follow us on Facebook and Twitter and help us spread the word through there. My name is Daniel, and thank you so much for listening.